the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, our focus is on the country's two biggest media companies, broadcaster RTE and newspaper publisher INM. Earlier today, RTE announced its plans for more than 200 voluntary redundancies, a review of various services and the sale of some of its prime land at Montrose. This is all aimed at making it a smaller but more nimble organisation. On Tuesday, INM announced that its pre-tax profits in 2016 had risen by 12%, albeit largely by cost containment. But this was obscured by the revelation that its chief executive, Robert Pitt, had made a protected disclosure to the ODCE, the state's corporate watchdog. This related to a proposed bid last year for News Talk, the radio station owned by INM's largest shareholder, Dennis O'Brien, and it led to a dispute between Pitt and INM's chairman, Leslie Buckley. Joining me in the studio to discuss these stories are Irish Times business reporters, Laura Slattery and Mark Paul. And don't forget, you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Laura, we'll start with you and RT. These job cuts, voluntary redundancies, more than 200, D Forbes has indicated and also a, a restructuring of its operations to focus on the challenge of digital content. So it's quite sweeping changes that D Forbes has announced today to, to how RTE operates and how it's going to be structured. So the idea is that it, she will sort out the divisions at the top first before she can kind of almost work out mm. where the voluntary redundancies uh, will happen um, or where, where they will target those voluntary redundancies. So the target is about 200, could be a little bit less, could be a little bit more, could be up to 250. Um, they won't know until they go through the process, as you know, as you, as you know with, the, with voluntary redundancy schemes you don't know how many applications you're going to get um, there'll be some retirements of course as well um, any voluntary redundancy scheme at RTE is going to cost RTE money and create a bad headline uh, in the sense that it will add to its deficit it's already expected to be in deficit uh, this year on top of about roughly 20 million for last year we haven't got the published figure yet so it's a loss effectively so, for last yeah, year so I mean it's, it's kind of a interesting that this has coincided with the news that it's expecting to get about 75 million from the land sale, almost 10 acres, not quite at uh, at Montrose. Um, but that money is really earmarked for sort of, you know, in- infrastructure and capital uh, investments, upgrades to facilities. Um, but it may end up having to uh, sort out some of the deficit money as well. Um, whereas you know, it's 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 a little bit of a, of a messy coincidence, and yeah. D Forbes didn't really. I, I'm not sure she intended to say on radio earlier that she would like to see a doubling of the license fee. I think she was trying to make the point that she thought it would still be value for money if it was. Um, double yeah, the that was a remark rate. she made on Sean O'Rourke's yeah. uh, radio show. She has since recanted. Uh, she has. In a, she a has. I mean, by RT. she has. I mean, I, I think she would like to see it happening, but she knows that it's not a political reality. Look, we're not going to mm. even see a fiver. Any the notion fee. in this release, she said that any notion uh, that the license fee be doubled is nonsense. So yeah. she's she's obviously no. Uh, I mean, I, I think clarify they know those remarks. They can't uh, get. They say. can't get. Uh, they can't sort out their mm. funding problem with a license fee increase. They know, and everybody knows, in fact, the government has known this for many, many years, and they're the ones who have the power in this situation, that the way to uh, sort out RTE is to improve the licence fee collection system. So that mm. would help. Uh, and How much uh, are they losing every year, potentially? Well, the estimates are sort of 30 to 40 million. Now, these are estimates, but, um, you know, obviously the Department of Communications has done its homework too, and these are estimates that the minister gives. 
Um, so it's not just RTE saying this. And of course, there is a wider broadcasting sector that benefits from the licence fee as well. It's not just RTE, it's all the independent producers and everybody else. Um, so, um, you know, uh, there's a good statement out today from the National Union of Journalists saying, look, we don't want to see, we don't want to see all these redundancies at RTE if, if they're not going to also address this long-term funding issue. So the two things do go hand in hand. Mm, sounds a bit like Bus Aaron almost, you know, let's, uh, it, it sounds as if it wants the government to intervene to uh, help fund RTE. Well, RTE is the National Public Service Broadcaster and it wouldn't exist, uh, it wouldn't be the, com- the company, the organisation that it is without the licence fee. It was set up as a dual funded um, company. It wouldn't, it uses the licence fee as leverage. Um, you know, if it was just, if it just had its commercial, if it was just its commercial income, it just wouldn't survive. We wouldn't do any, produce any of the things that it produces. Okay, we might come back to RTE in a few moments and, and discuss maybe whether we're getting value for money f- from it or not. Uh, but Mark, we're going to talk about INM now. There was uh, a fairly dramatic revelation during the week to coincide with INM's full year results, which showed an increase in pre-tax profits. But of much more interest was the fact that it, it subsequently emerged that uh, Robert Pitt, the chief executive of INM, had made a protected disclosure to the ODCE about uh, the proposed bid last year for News Talk, which is a radio station owned by INM's largest shareholder, Dennis O'Brien. We know you've reported on it previously that that whole bid process led to a dispute between Robert Pitt and Leslie Buckley. But uh, we now know a lot more about it. Tell, tell us all. Yeah, well, Ro- Robert Pitt is in a quite remarkable situation um, um, of, of having effectively turned to the state for protection under whistleblower rules. Um, what well, Robert Pitt... When they announced their financial results on Tuesday morning, um, um, INM, in a little addendum, just just right at the end of the results, um, they said that the ODCE, um, which is the state's corporate watchdog, had asked them for records in relation to um, um, the news talk bid and related matters, um, which is understood to mean a, a sort of an internal investigation they'd already had um, um, last year. Um, and they also said that they had hired um, a senior counsel and an independent corporate governance review expert to have a look at the whole situation again. Basically, to have a look at the whole row between Robert Pitt mm. and Leslie Buckley that we know has taken place. Um, and then later on in the day, then we uh, we established here in the Irish Times that uh, that Robert Pitt, um, that the ODCE intervention had come after Robert Pitt had made a protected disclosure under uh, under under the the. the, the the, the, and uh, laws that were enacted in, in whistleblower laws that were enacted in 2014. So what kind of protection does that give him? He cannot be sacked for making a disclosure. Um, he can't be threatened uh, or, or otherwise penalised for making the disclosure. And um, because the disclosure has been made to an outside body, there are different ways to make a disclosure under the Act and for it to become a protected disclosure. Um, and you can make it internally to your own company, uh, uh, to somebody, you know, to, 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 but he's the chief executive. Who, who else do you go to? His dispute with the chairman where else do you go he's already senior uh, independent director he's already done that uh, and, uh, last year uh, and not as a protected disclosure but he did raise an issue with the senior independent director who then formed a board subcommittee who looked into this issue and come back and said there was nothing to see um, um, so to, to, so really his, his, his options for making a protected disclosure within the company appear to have been reasonably limited um, if you go to an outside body there is a list of prescribed bodies by the state that you can go to there are various regulators you know there's the aviation regulator and so on. One of them is the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement. And there's a much higher standard of, um, proof is probably the wrong word, but there's a much higher standard of responsibility on the on the person who makes the disclosure if you go to an outside body. You have to reasonably believe that uh, uh, all of the information that you're giving them is substantially true. Basically, 
you know, you, you have to be fairly sure of it, uh, of, of, of the truth of the disclosure that you're making. And the disclosure has to be about um, what's known in the legislation as a relevant wrongdoing. Now, you can't just make a protected disclosure to an outside body about, you know, I don't like how a particular person is doing their job or whatever. But it has to be a wrong, mm. an allegation of a wrongdoing. And of course, the person on the other end of the allegation can come up with a defence. Of course they can. Um, a, a relevant wrongdoing, if the ODC is involved, it has to be a relevant wrongdoing under the Companies Acts. Um, so um, you're looking at uh, uh, you, you're looking at uh, effectively an, uh, an allegation uh, uh, or, 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 or a complaint that there may have been some sort of a breach of the company's acts um, within independent news and media, which of course uh, the people on the receiving end or, or, or whoever is on the receiving end of that allegation uh, may very well have a valid defence and reject that. Um, but uh, what we so, but what we can definitely state as fact is that the state's corporate watchdog has sought records from uh, independent news and media. We can state as fact that um, that an independent corporate governance expert and a, and a senior counsel, a barrister, uh, are conducting an independent review. And those are the second and third examinations underway of this row between Leslie Buckley and Robert Pitt. The first being that one um, by the board subcommittee by the senior independent director last year. And how long does the legislation protect the whistleblower? Is it an indefinite period or is it a period from under which, let's say, the ODC completes its work or, or do we know? Um, well, the, 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 it's, it's, it's the... It's, it's the disclosure that is protected in a sense rather than the person making the disclosure. They, they are protected, obviously. The first thing under, under legislation, the first thing that has to happen is that it has to be, the disclosure has to be defined as a protected disclosure. So it has to meet certain criteria to do that. Um, um, and and, and the, the legislation is quite clear that once it meets those criteria, then the protections that are afforded to the person that makes it are, are mm. they're, they're laid out in black and white. They can't be penalised in any way. So I guess it's an indefinite form of protection. I don't think that the protection lifts at any stage where you can be penalised for making the... Uh, no, the I only ask because it strikes me that the ODCE, I mean, it could take ages for the ODCE to complete its work. It generally does on, on anything. Uh, and yet we have a, a situation where the chief executive and the chairman are clearly at odds over this. And I'm just wondering how long the chief executive enjoys this uh, protection, uh, if you will, uh, as a result of, uh, the, the, the protect- of making this disclosure. The, the protection only exists insofar as he can't be penalised for making a disclosure. Um, I mean, you know, that doesn't make them completely and utterly bulletproof if, for example, there were to be a row okay. about something else. Now, INM in its uh, statement on Tuesday seemed to sort of play down, as you say, it was towards the end of the statement, but they also described it as a procedural matter that doesn't involve any conclusion that there's been a breach of law by the company. So they're very much trying to play it down. Yeah, well, yeah, they said it's a procedural matter. It doesn't involve any conclusion that there's been a breach of law by the company. But of course, it doesn't involve any conclusion whatsoever um, um, that there has been a breach of company law or that there hasn't been a breach of company law it could, because the, the process hasn't reached its end point. So no conclusions have been made one way or the other. Um, um, you, you know, somebody reading that in passing might think that a conclusion had been reached that there hadn't been a breach of law. That's not the case. No conclusion has been reached one way or the other. Yeah. Laura, you were covering the actual results the meet and drink of the results if you like bit of a mixed bag a bit like all newspaper traditional newspaper publishers uh, circulations down newspaper revenue down as well somewhat offset by an increase in digital revenues yeah I mean like almost every probably financial story you you could really spin this as a really great positive set of results for INM or a really horrendous set of results but like you say it's somewhere in the middle um, sort of the, the profit the pre-tax profit grew 12% but but why did it grow 12% it's because it it 
cut costs. It had closed uh, Belfast printing operation, and it, it you know it had lower costs as a result. Um, it also increased uh, revenue um, from the distribution end of things. Now, revenue as a whole only kind of nudged up a tiny bit, 0.7%. But the distribution revenue was up. And you can say it was like a once-off gain because it has a, a contract to just, uh, distribute the Irish Times. Um, but also because it got involved in other categories such as fresh food, packaging and other things that are nothing to do with the beleaguered um, media sector. But just kind of sort of raised the question, you know, what is the company INM of the future? Is it, is it the is it a van company or, or is it a, is it a digital publishing um, empire uh, with with a lot of print titles um, that you can you can only imagine that, okay there might be a bit of a plateau but you can only imagine that the the pattern of declining circulation revenue and declining print advertising revenue which print advertising revenue was down and uh, you know more than nine percent um, last year that's only going to con- continue so so there's a slight kind of what next question for INM? It's a little bit of a stasis, I think, on the acquisition strategy, mm. perhaps because a lot of the energy of late has been caught up in, in this in this, in this row, news yeah. talk row. Um, you know, what does it buy? I mean, it hasn't bought anything really digitally apart from the half of Cars Ireland, i.e. that it didn't own. And it started talking about how it's really well poised at Cars Ireland to make uh, classifieds cash, but really, I think the market is looking for something a bit more than that. Yeah, Mark, they do have a cash pile of eighty-five million euro, which is quite healthy. I mean, a lot of newspaper publishers would love that kind of money in the bank, uh, and they are trying to buy the Celtic Media Group regional uh, titles, aren't they? But that's that's in a process at the yeah. minute. Yeah, their, their, their acquisition strategy is basically two pronged: and the island of Ireland, um, and they want to mop up print assets, um, and and outside of Ireland, in, in in the UK, and possibly further afield, they want to buy digital assets. Uh, Robert Pitt on, on the analyst conference call on Tuesday morning was quite clear. We don't want to buy print assets outside of Ireland and we only want to buy digital. But, you know, I mean, he's sort of asking for a lot. He said he wanted assets that were immediately earnings accretive and, you know, easy to uh, to bolt on and with strong management teams. But sure, they're the sort of digital assets that everybody wants to buy. Um, so your, your, your 84 million in cash doesn't necessarily go all that far if you're trying to buy um, um, the top shelf assets. You know, I mean, he's not, he's not looking to mop up the stress assets abroad. He's looking to buy prime assets. Um, um, it was linked with the Examiner newspaper recently. Any word on that? Um, well, Robert Pitt, he, he didn't mention the Examiner by name in his analyst conference call, but what he did say was that you know, whilst we'd love to buy all sorts of print assets in Ireland, um, and we have to be mindful of the environment in which we operate, the regulatory environment. And he, what he seemed to be saying was that, you know, we'd love to buy other newspapers but we're not going to be let. Um, 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 and and it, it would be hard to see how from a political point of view um, independent news media will be let by another uh, uh, national newspaper title. At the very least, it, it, it'd be a difficult deal to get over the line. But just, I mean, just to add to that, it would be hard to see that happening because of who their their biggest shareholder is. If their biggest shareholder wasn't Dennis O'Brien, if Dennis O'Brien wasn't involved in INM at all, I don't think you know there would even be a case. There wouldn't be a case here. INM could take over that Celtic Media Group, you know, which operates in in, in towns where it it doesn't already have regional titles. INM itself. So there's no kind of direct competition issue there. The the issue is that Dennis O'Brien also owns Communicore. So it, it's so what's good for INM? It's a bit of a sticky wicket for the politicians, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a bit of a sticky wicket for sort of INM as a company. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. Uh, when we return, we'll have more on the latest developments at RT and INM. Back in a few moments. 
Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me just remind you, you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Uh, this week, our focus is on some pretty dramatic developments at both RTE and INM. I'm joined in studio by Mark Paul and Laura Slattery. Uh, Laura, let's go back to RTE. And let's pretend you're D Forbes for a minute and you're charged with cutting costs and transforming RTE uh, into a, a digital player for the digital age, as it were. Uh, what would you do? Where would, where would you take the knife to in terms terms of cuts for a start? Well, I think what she's said so far is actually quite sensible in the sense that she, she's can identify a kind of cost savings, actually. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but within RTE Digital itself as a division, because a lot of those roles are now being going to be subsumed within radio and television. Um, and, you know, television is its uh, main cash cow. So you have to be very careful about cutbacks there, especially content cutbacks. So if you can find a way, you know, of, 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 of reducing your operational costs that doesn't actually affect the amount of money you're spending on programs, then that's obviously the way the way. So how forward. do they go about doing that? God, I, I, I'd, have, I'd have applied to be Director General of RTE if I'd known you were going to ask me these questions. Um, no, uh, I think, I think you know, they, they do employ, you know, I actually don't like saying these things, but they probably do employ too many people. Well, at the end of 15, just on the latest yeah, annual report, it was yeah. just shy of 2,000 uh, well, people. 1,978. Uh, but I think the yeah. interesting thing was that it had actually increased by 122 people over, the, over 2014 and 2015. And maybe there was a sense that, you know, the worst of the crisis had passed at that point. But they quickly found themselves in 2016 with a whole lot of expenses, yeah. plus an advertising market that wasn't really going as well as they had hoped. So they've almost sort of landed back in a financial crisis really soon after the last one. So so I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of... It's a, it's a, but it's I suppose a, a lot of people will wonder, Laura, I mean, there have been question marks over 2FM for a number of years, for example, mm. um, that usent to receive a licence fee subvention, it does now. Um, and it's not really performing very well. Let's 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 be honest about it. And in in terms of RT two television, D Forbes I think has called out herself that they're going to look at uh, at RT two again and, and see what should be done with that. Um, but you also have a raft of other uh, services that they provide. Uh, Lyric FM, for example, a niche uh, broadcast uh, offering. You have Radio and Nagoya talk that they have to provide money to TG Car, the two orchestras. Um, There's a series of digital radio channels. Of digital as well. digital radio channels. I don't know anybody who listens to them. Maybe. They do have a, a core audience. I don't know, but I, I don't know of anybody who listens to them. Should they be involved in all of those activities? Well, I think they're going to have to look at each one. But, you know, it, it's it's hard to know which limb do you cut because, OK, 2FM, you know, it hasn't performed and it's operating in, in, in a different market than it used to. But, you know, if you, it, they, they're trying to use 2FM strategically as a way of getting younger people, younger audiences on board. And if they could, you know, if they could swing this, they would they would merge 2FM with RTE2. Now, the independent radio sector, commercial radio sector, would just object to high heaven about that because they would see that as an unfair advantage. But they that the, the idea that you would merge the two sort of channels that 
have a focus on younger people. Okay, or T2 also is the home of sport. But, you know, it's evening entertainment, you know, which isn't really, hasn't really been doing so well in the last couple of years as the occasional hit like first dates or whatever. But it's struggling to get that younger audiences. So, and 2FM also struggling just due to the competition that's there. But if you say, okay, we're struggling at this, we cut that. Then what's the where's, where's the future? Where does it go from there? It's almost like you're kind of signing your own death warrant and saying, well, okay, well we still have the Radio One pe- audience. The, you know, Radio One's a great performer. Uh, we still got that locked down, but it's it's mm. largely over. But I think 55s. what a lot of people might not realise, um, and this might be slightly controversial for me to say, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, the orchestras um, are ten percent of the workforce. Two hundred and four people uh, employed by, on the orchestras. Seven percent of the licence fee goes towards the orchestras. And they cost just shy of nine million uh, euro. That's that's essentially out of license fee money. That's what's allocated to the orchestras. Now, for a lot of people, and, and I appreciate that the orchestras do good work and all of that. Mm-hmm. Very I mean, it's less than people. the cost of a Six Nations championship. Let's be honest. Sure, but they lost the yeah. Six Nations. Uh, but a lot of people watch the Six Nations. They don't listen to the orchestras. Yeah, but I think this is where RTE is a public, you know, the fact that it's a public service broadcaster comes into it because there is a kind of a a high minded, you know, high culture. Uh, role. It's part of its function to to those orchestras. I quite honest, I haven't seen a, a you know a, a compete a competing idea that you know somebody another cultural organisation could house those orchestras orchestras now. Perhaps they could. I'm not really an expert on that, but it's certainly you know the fact they have two orchestras. You know, it, it could like those two orchestras do very different things. You know, the concert orchestra is the is the populist one that goes and out and sells the tickets and does the the movie shows and it does the it sells out the three arena with the DJ Jenny Green on on you know 90s classics. It gets young people in. I mean, it sounds strange. And the symphony orchestra is is the more high culture. One, but you know, Ireland, you know, needs to have a, a national symphony orchestra. So it's really a question of whether that comes. On, it's funded by RTE or is funded elsewhere. Mark, oh, no, just Laura said Ireland needs to have a, 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 a national symphony orchestra. I was just going to pose the question: Does it? Does it have to have one? If it's if this is high culture and elite culture, why does it have to be paid for with everybody in a state with a tax, effectively, or a slice of a tax? I'm not. I'm not expressing my position. I don't. I don't know the answer. I'm just saying that if uh, if. If it's high culture and, and, and elite culture and elite entertainment, it's clearly going to be consumed and, and, and absorbed by an elite of society. So why don't they just pay for it themselves? Yeah, OK. Uh, let's just talk about the licence fee because it has been proposed. Newspapers are struggling, as we all know, because we work for one. And it has been proposed that perhaps uh, newspapers should get a dig out from the licence fee. What do you think, Mark? Well, uh, look, I think I think newspapers already get uh, enough of a dig out from the state, to be honest with you, because uh, newspaper companies get uh, access to this 9% um, special VAT rate that was brought in for the tourism industry. So, you know, you could argue that... Hasn't done much for circulation? Hasn't done much for circulation, no, but it certainly hasn't done any harm, has it? Well, the circulation has declined, so I'm not blaming that on the VAT rate. But 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 but, but look, uh, look. Commercial realities have to set. Whether it's a newspaper company, whether it's RTE, whether it's independent news and media, whether it's uh, the Irish Times, whether it's anybody, it's at a certain stage, um, for sustainability and for long term viability, um, um, organisations of all shapes, sizes, and hues have to face commercial reality. Um, and you know, you can't be sitting there looking for the state to bail you out uh, time and time and time again. But there is look, an element of culture that isn't is never going to be commercially, you know, the big bonanza. And there is there is an argument that RTE is you know it's a national media organisation, and if it wasn't there, what would happen? Well, I'm afraid I think a lot of the overseas owned media groups wouldn't simply swallow up the ground. 
You know, it would oh, well, be great I'm, sorry, I'm not suggesting that RTE should be closed. I'm just saying, does RTE need to do everything that it currently does? Well, it's, I mean, it, but it's much of a muchness. If, if another organisation takes over the, the, you know, some of the fun- their functions, those would probably still have to be funded. You know, so it's a question of how these things are funded. But When, when David McRedmond, uh, who is now the current chief executive of OnPlus, when he was the chief executive of TV3, he used to make a very valid point during the sort of the years of austerity, where he didn't um, say that the RTE licence fees should be uh, should be increased or, or, or should be decreased. What he basically said was that RTE should be funded solely by the licence fee and made a much, much, much smaller organisation um, and, and, and leave the commercial landscape uh, to, uh, to the commercial guys and to everybody else. But he basically, I think his point at that time um, when he was chief executive of TV3 was that it had the best of both worlds. Um, that if you want RTE to be an organisation that fulfills a cultural mandate and has elite cultural acts like a symphony orchestra and, and various other things that might be commercially viable on their own, well, I just completely fund those with a tax, but just make it much smaller uh, and, and, and the tax much smaller and, and, and tell it to well, get out of the advertising market. Presumably, Laura, at that stage, it would just become something of a, a backwater broadcaster. Well, that would be a risk. But I mean, I do, I do think that, you know, David McRebin did make a very good argument uh, along those lines. There are, there, RTE does behave, you know, quite aggressively commercially at times and you kind of do kind of sit back and think is that is that what really actually he RTE feels that they're not aggressive enough certainly in terms of their advertising he feels that they're setting the advertising rates too low yeah well no that's 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 a sort of separate point and yeah, everybody no. else is pegged to the RT rate essentially all the other broadcasters yeah no he, he, he did he, that's a sort of a separate point yeah that's true that that's uh, well, that's, that's a form of regression though isn't it that's predat- that's that's very 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 Mm. Deeply competitive pricing is, uh, is, is. And speaking to David McRebent, uh, coincidentally, now he's uh, in charge at OnPost, and OnPost yes. collect the license fee on behalf of RTE. And I suspect there are some in RTE who think that perhaps they're not doing a great job of it, given that uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 million uh, seems to go awry every year. So, what's going to happen to that mandate that OnPost have? And what might it mean for OnPost? Because we know OnPost is challenged as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the most likely thing that will happen here is that the collection of the licence fee uh, will sort of split from the enforcement uh, part of the licence fee um, so that people could technically speaking still pay their licence fee through the OnPost or the, you know, the OnPost operated website, which is how probably a lot of people do it. Um, but that, that the enforcement agency, probably perhaps a UK group like Capita, who have experience of this. So some in, sort of debt collection agency yeah, essentially that they would comes be come in along and hassles just, people for their licence fee. But whether having let it kind of slide for so long, whether you can kind of implement a kind of a culture of, you mm. know, of, of fear around the licence well, fee, well, I'm not well, sure if you can. Well, they not just save themselves a whole lot of bother by just calling it what it is. It's not a fee or a licence fee, it's a tax, because everybody effectively has to pay it. Just call but it everybody a ta- doesn't pay it, Mark. This is the whole thing. I, I know, but, but, but in, I'm talking about in practice and in fact who doesn't have a TV who doesn't have a TV these days why bother going around knocking on doors to check well, it seems well, lots I mean, of people don't have a TV don't we have we have statistics on so that there was all this yeah. talk about making it a household charge yeah. it's a, look in effect maybe not a name maybe not completely 100% but in effect it's a tax so just make it a tax make it make everybody liable well, for it whether you want to or not how many, how many households <laughs> don't and, have and a TV the collection of, of revenue Oh, I, I don't actually know, Kieran. It is more than it was before, but 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 the, the, there 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 is you know there's something like 1.5 million TV homes, um, the, more more homes than before are self-reporting that they don't have televisions. But okay. it, um, Mark, let's just go back to INM very quickly. Um, you said in your analysis piece uh, uh, at the very end of uh, your analysis piece. Um, you sort of posed a question in relation to INM and its leadership. Where to now for the leadership of INM? So I'm now going to pose that question to you. 
Well, they have to resolve this issue one way or the other. I mean, I mean, a company can't, uh, in the long term, in the medium term, uh, function with its chief executive and its chairman at odds in this fashion um, with outside groups such as the director of corporate enforcement coming in to try and, uh, and, and, and look at these issues. There's going to have to be some sort of a resolution. Um, um, and, uh, you know, look, the, 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 there are other shareholders in I&M, uh, 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 you know, there are the previous bondholders who took, who took who took equity in a company. There is, you know, Farrington, which is a Dutch hedge fund. These are major shareholders. Dermot Desmond. Uh, Dermot Desmond, who was 15% of it. Um, these are major shareholders. You know, they want their company to function. Um, and they don't want their chief executive and their chairman to be at each other's throats. They're going to have to solve this row one way or the other. I don't know what the, the, the resolution for that looks like. I, I, I really don't know what it looks like. How do you resolve? I can't, you know, I can't think of any comparable situation where you have the chief executive and the chairman of an Irish listed company as such loggerheads and then you, you have the involvement of outside organisations such as the ODCE um, and you have people making protected disclosures about a company. I can't, I, I can't think of any precedent for that. Um, so it's, it's, it's unsustainable um, um, in, in the long term and they're going to have to come to some sort of a resolution. But as to what that resolution looks like, I mean, who knows? If I knew that, I'd be in there trying to mediate between the two of them. You know. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Laura Slattery and Mark Paul. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember that this podcast podcast is available to download for free from iTunes. You'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. You can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.